morning. It is uh, good to be back with you after not being with you for two weeks. Feels like longer than that. I, w- I guess I was here last week, though, but I just did not contribute to the teaching ministries. And I trust that uh, everyone was well served by the uh, conjunction of the videos we had on offer um, with uh, Chris Davis, for uh, for whom we're very thankful. Uh, we have uh, a lot to cover this morning, and uh, I'm excited to teach this, and then excited to teach on uh, the resurrection of Jesus, because he is risen. He's risen. And uh, that means that our lives have significance, and that's going to be the topic, the primary topic of our of our sermon in the next hour. But uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we will dive into this material, and I will try not to get too excited or too nerdy about one of my favorite pieces uh, of philosophy. Let's pray. God, we're thankful to be here this morning. We're thankful for a risen Savior. We're, we're thankful that in the words of Revelation that Christians will only die once as a result of his one death. We're thankful that we have eternal hope that is unshakable. We're thankful that because of that, our lives have dignity and that they have significance. We pray that you would be with us during this Sunday school hour as we kick off a new series, that you would be with us in the uh, hour to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So, if I understand correctly, the last two weeks in Sunday school have been two videos. One is on kind of the history of Reformed uh, Baptists, or really history up to Reformed Baptists, and then... Uh, the other was on as a primer on the so-called doctrines of grace or Calvinism. I don't like the moniker. Uh, well, I shouldn't say it's a moniker. I, I don't like the label doctrines of grace, even though it's what I've titled this, uh, because it's like other doctrines aren't gracious or something. So like, I don't know. This doesn't make sense to me. It's like the, the doctrine of the end state where you spend eternity with Christ. Isn't that a? Sounds to me like a, a doctrine of grace to me. But anyways, the doctrines of grace uh, or Reformed theology or Calvinism, as it's sometimes called, uh, we're going to have go through a series where we go back to basics and walk through some of these things, particularly as they are outlined by the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. However, before we do that, we are going to start with the problem of free will, and we are going to talk about it as a uh, uh, right now as a theological problem at all. Zero. We're not going to talk any theology today. And it might not be immediately obvious why we would take such a course, but I hope by the end of today's time together it will. I remember being a freshman at the University of Alabama in an introductory to philosophy class, an 18-year-old. I was reformed. I went in there, and uh, we were talking about uh, – th- there was a section in our class, this is a section on metaphysics, and, and, uh, and, and it was uh, on free will. And I was like, oh, of course. Well, I know I'm going to be a minority opinion here in this class. But I was shocked, utterly shocked, to learn that in the discipline of academic philosophy, at least in terms of what um, you, on a particular conception of free will, um, a lot of philosophers who have nothing to do, who who want nothing to do, excuse me, with God or Christianity, and certainly not Reformed theology, don't believe in free will either. I found out that I was actually not alone. I had many comrades, even if it was for very different reasons. And it was, in fact, the view, the the free will view in academic philosophy is actually the minority. 
I was like, what? What is this? What is this aberration? How can this be? And, uh, and so philosophers debate free will just as much and perhaps more so than theologians do. And that is probably difficult to imagine for some of you. Um, I was able to go from that introductory course. You, most of you realize, uh, remember that I end up, ended up getting a degree in philosophy. And then when I was a senior, there was a guy there who was an expert in the metaphysics of free will, philosophy of free will. And I was able to take an upper level seminar in advanced in the advanced philosophy of free will. And it has stayed one of my favorite uh, philosophical problems. And so what I'm going to do this morning, and again, I think immediate might, might not be immediately obvious why I'm doing this, but I think it will at the end. I'm going to give a mercifully and incredibly simplified, and it must be both in order to, for this to work, mercifully and incredibly simplified introduction to this problem and a couple of suggested solutions ahead of getting into the doctrines of grace. Okay? Let's start by stating the problem and what it is. I want to give you a, a feel for what the problem is. I'm going to explain each premise of this argument. By the way, this, this argument is in deductive, it's deductively valid, which means it's that the conclusions follow by the laws of logic. So you can't just say, I disagree. If the premises are true, the conclusion follows inescapably, kind of like two plus two equaling four. That's how it's just by truth entailment and the axioms of propositional logic. First premise that creates the what is the problem of free will to begin with. Our choices either have or lack sufficient explanations. I might have said our choices are either caused or uncaused. You might have said that as well. There's a couple ways to frame this. What does this mean? Our choices either have or lack sufficient explanations. A sufficient explanation is an is a explanation that entirely explains a state of affairs or something that happened. Okay? Um, after a sufficient explanation has been given for something, there's nothing left to explain, basically. That's what a sufficient explanation is, as opposed to giving like a necessary element in a larger explanation. Like, okay, that's required, but that's not sufficient. Sufficient explanation is after I've given it, there's nothing else to explain. I have totally explained this. So, for example, if I called you from Orlando and you asked me how I got there and I told you that I drove to Birmingham, you might say, so how did you get to Orlando? And it may very well be true that I took I-65 South and went on down uh, through Birmingham. And, and you might even say that, of course, that's not really necessary. You could take a more circuitous route, I suppose. But that's one step along the path. But that's not a sufficient explanation. There's a lot of people who drove to Birmingham who didn't end up in Orlando. But if I told you I flew from BNA to Orlando and we got in this morning, that's a sufficient explanation. That's how. Boom. There's, there's not like a further. That's how I got there. Um, so by sufficient, we aren't talking about an explanation that would convince somebody. We're not about persuasion. You might give a totally false sufficient explanation for something, okay? Um, suppose when I called you, uh, I wasn't actually in Orlando. Still, flying to Orlando, is a, you could say that's a, that is a sufficient explanation for how one could get to Orlando. So this is supposed to be a very basic intuition. Again, I'm trying not to overcomplicate it. Another, um, you're going to get another example just very briefly. Suppose I ask someone why there's a fist-shaped hole 
in their wall and they say, I got angry. There's a fist-shaped hole in the wall. Why? Because I got angry. Is that a sufficient explanation for why there's a hole in the wall? I mean, a lot of people get angry without there being a hole in the wall. It's not a sufficient explanation. There's got to be, there's more explaining to do to explain how there is a hole in the wall. You just telling me that you're angry, there is still a gap, explanatory gap there, okay? So in the case of our choices, we can hold up any choice, and we can say that either the choice has a sufficient explanation or it doesn't. There is a sufficient account, for example, of why I choose X, or there is no sufficient account. There's a sufficient explanation for why I did this, or there is no sufficient explanation. There is an explanatory gap. After I told you everything, there is still ultimately no, uh, an ex, a full explanation. That's what that means. Okay? So that's the, those are your two options there. They either have or they lack sufficient explanation. Well, let's explore both of those horns of that dilemma. Okay? Our choices have or lack explanations. If it's, e if it's easier to think of it like this, you could say either cho all of our choices are either caused by something or they're not caused by anything. Caused or uncaused. They either have a su sufficient explanation or they don't. Let's take, let's, talk that, let's take that first horn of the dilemma. Now, no one freak out. I, I'm going to explain this. I'm going to explain it, okay? If our choices have sufficient explanations, complete explanations for all of our choices that explain why we did them, then we can ask, what explains the presence of those explanatory factors? You gave me an explanation for why you did that. Okay, but, but what, what about that? What explains why those explanatory factors were present? It would seem that those factors will also have sufficient explanations. Very quickly, we'll realize that the fundamental explanation for our choices lies in a chain of explanations that extend far beyond anything we, over which we have control and in virtue of which we were unable to do otherwise. Let me give you, just make this more concrete. Suppose I say, why did you order steak? Maybe we give David Hume's old answer. A belief-desire pairing. That's what happened. I desired it, and I believed it was available to order because it was on the menu. All right, so let's say that's a sufficient explanation. I desired it. It was available for order. You, com you combine both of these things. That's the explanation. But then you say this, but why did you desire steak? Did you choose to conjure up that desire in the moment, or did you just find yourself with that desire? You said, no, I just, I just had the desire. I, 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 like, I like steak. Well, when did you find yourself enjoying the taste of steak, though? Well, as far back as I can remember, my, my dad used to cook steak all the time in our house. Oh, I see. Did you tell him to cook the steak? That's what you did. You, you told him to cook. No, that's not it either. He cooked it and said, this is what's for dinner. And I just found myself liking it. And now I find myself with this desire for it. Let me ask you a question. You said you, the action and belief. What about your belief that the, this restaurant serves steak? Did you choose to believe that or were you caused to believe that by the menu? Would you have a control over what the menu said? No, didn't have control over what the menu said. Do you have control over the restaurant, the offerings the restaurant made? No, didn't have control over that either. 
So when you made your choice to order steak, you didn't bring about your desire for it, your enjoyment of it, your belief that they serve steak. Then what exactly about it was free and under your control? If you didn't choose any of the factors you just told me went into it, what exactly about it was up to you? Maybe we run the example differently. I'll give you a second pass at this. Same guy, same desires, same menu. Doesn't order steak. Bad decision, probably. Why not? Why did you not order steak, Buford? You should have. By the way, oh yeah, everyone's staring. That's funny. Everyone's staring right here at the top of my, my eye. I should have explained. I had a sebaceous cyst removed. I had all these. I was ready to tell about how I got in a bar fight for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was this great, you know, and, and then, but no, unfortunately, it's far less exciting. I had this removed on Thursday and there's a couple stitches in my head. All right. That was not part of the Sunday school. I, just, I, I forgot to explain. And a couple people I've talked to this morning were like, they looked at it, but they thought they would be rude to. Yeah. That was my choice. Exactly. But how much of it was free? Let's continue on. So you say, well, why didn't you order steak? Same, same guy, same desire, same menu. He says, well, it's a tough one, I, I have to say, but I, I'm trying to lose weight. And I realized, I remembered that ribeyes uh, have a bunch of calories, which is no doubt correct, regrettably. Uh, let me ask you a question. Did you choose to remember or realize that? Kind of at that moment where you go, I'm going to order a steak. And then you just, you, you realize it, you remember that. Or did that just kind of come to mind? You remembered it. No, yeah, I just kind of, it just came to mind. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Well, why does the fact that it has a bunch of calories have to do with anything? Well, I'm trying to lose weight. Well, how did you come to believe that reducing calories helps you lose weight? Well, that's just basic science. It's just basic nutrition. Okay, well, well when you heard about those scientific facts, did you, were you just caused to believe them because there was good reasons to? Or did you hear about it and you said, today I choose to believe in calories? Were you persuaded by someone who was competent that this is the case? Or did you choose to believe about caloric enhancement like you chose cereal from Kroger. What about your desire to lose weight in the first place? How did you come across that? Well, the doctor said I needed to lower my, my blood pressure. Why do you think you have high blood pressure? Well, because of the blood pressure cuff, it read high. And then I came to believe that as a result of what it showed me. Okay. Why do you think reducing your weight will lower your blood pressure? Because that's what the doctor said. It's common knowledge. If I asked you if you could choose to believe that gaining weight actually reduces blood pressure, could you do it? No, I couldn't. Could, could you choose to believe that I'm not holding up five fingers right now? No, you could not. So leading up to the moment of not ordering steak, you didn't choose your belief that you had high blood pressure. You were persuaded of it. You didn't choose to recall that ribeyes are high in calories and fat. That just came to you. You didn't choose your strong desire to lose weight. 
to lower that blood pressure. And you didn't choose the background belief, just like seeing the number five, that lowering weight can help lower blood pressure. Is that right? Is that what you're telling me in this moment? Okay. So again, the question is, so what exactly, if, all, if, if there is a sufficient explanation for our choices, and those have sufficient explanations, and those have sufficient explanations, the, 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 the brunt of premise two here is to say, if that's the case, then we are unable to do otherwise. And the causes of our actions extend far back beyond anything we have over control over, and they fall down like explanatory dominoes. Premise two. Okay? Premise three. So now we're going to take the other horn. So that's what's the case if all of our choices have complete sufficient explanations. And those have complete sufficient explanations and so on and so forth. But what do you say? No. I'm getting off the train. I see where that leads. I see where that one leads. I'm not riding that train. We're going to say that our choices do not have, at least not all of them, have complete sufficient explanations. There are at least some that don't. Well, here's this horn of the dilemma then. If choices lack sufficient explanations altogether, and there is at the level of fundamental reality, and I say that it's not, because, not that you can't identify it, there literally is no sufficient reason or explanation for why we choose X over not X, then our choices are the fruit of something indistinguishable from randomness or arbitrariness. Let's take our steak example again and utilize uh, an argument popularized by Peter Vandenwagen. I'm going to read you a quote of his. In a second, in the journal Mind, it kind of came against the, the mind argument or the rewind argument, uh, articulating premise three. We take our steak man. Steak man is at the point of ordering. He's got reasons to order steak. He desires it and it's there. He's got a reason to not order steak. He wants to lose weight, reduce that blood pressure. So he's got reasons for and against. We'll say that he orders steak. Now, let's rewind the world to that exact moment and keep every single thing the same. The same desires, same strength of desires, same reasons, same beliefs, same history, same context, same circumstance. Hit play. Chooses to not overstake. We rewind it again. Same exact desires, same exact beliefs, same exact circumstances. Because none of those things can be the explanation. You see why? Yeah. But we hit it again. Stake is the result. We keep doing this over and over and over. We keep putting, imagining this person in the circumstances. And after you run it a hundred thousand times. And every other time or in this random distribution. With the same reasons and the same desires and the same everything. In all the cases. There's no differences in the cases where they choose to order stake or not order stake. You might begin to think, why? What explains? What explains this? What explains, in a particular case, why he's ordering steak and rather steak, not ordering steak? And the answer, the premise three says, there is no explanation. Because you're asking, when you say why, you're asking for a sufficient and complete explanation. You're asking for an explanation. The whole point is, if there, there isn't one. 
That's why you can have all the same beliefs and desires and circumstances. None of that explains the choice. Otherwise, we'd be up in premise two, a complete explanation. So you get something that looks very, very random, indistinguishable from arbitrariness, which leads, by propositional logic, to four intermediate conclusions. Therefore, we are either unable to do otherwise or our choices are arbitrary. Peter Vandenwagen, who is probably the leading metaphysician alive right now, in his uh, essay, <laughs> I love how people write, can we just, can we talk about this for a second? It's so common in academia to write essays in their whole books. This is not an essay. This is a book. Okay, I'm in the middle of a 450-page essay by Robert Mosin. It's ridiculous. Anyways, I want you to listen to what Vandenwagen says here. He says, I have never pretended to understand how free will... By the way, Peter Vandenwagen is going to take number three. He is going to say that in order to preserve what we will call later libertarian free will, he is going to take three and say our choices lack complete and total explanations. There literally is no explanation in some of them. Because then you get stuck in premise two, which takes you back to being the result of things far in the past. But here, listen to what he says. He says, I've never pretended to understand how free will works. If I knew, I would tell you, but I don't. The questions raised by the above argument are deep ones, which I've just talked about, the, the, the questions. They're deep ones that I have no way of answering, just as I have no way of answering the questions that I have confessed myself puzzled by in section 4.4, which is his own mind argument. He's the one who came up with this rewind argument, hitting play over and over and over and just watching someone do different things every time. He says, how is that not random? If everything is held the same, there's no explanation. He says, I don't know. He says, I have no liking for unresolved mysteries and philosophy but it is no good trying to pretend that mysteries do not exist if they quite plainly do exist. Moreover, I prefer small mysteries to large mysteries, and one way to look at this book is an attempt to present a position on free will that commits its adherence to smaller mysteries than does any other competing position. There you have it from Dr. Van Wagen, the man himself. Okay, But the argument goes on. Let me just pause and say, does everyone understand how the argument runs so far? Anyone want to ask a question? If you have a question, there's probably someone else who has a question too. Just be honest. Yes. No, there. A great, great. Thank you. The question is: When I say there's no explanation, do we mean that we don't know what the explanation is, or that there literally is none? And the question, the answer is that there literally is none. Yeah, there isn't an explanation because then that would have to have an explanation. And then that would have to have an explanation. And at some point, you got to not have an explanation in order to break the chain that goes back before you were born and beyond. Yes, ma'am, one more time. Well, in some case, well, so, so like in the steak example, there are a lot of different influences, right? Yeah, and many of them are. I mean, when you, when you say outside, what do you mean?
So certainly... Um, Yes, every single thing is identical. No difference. No, every single thing is exactly identical. No, that, so let's hold on to that one. Maybe that's the case, but the whole point here is that he, for, but the whole point of this one is if it doesn't if it doesn't have a sufficient explanation, if you're saying he's going to choose the same thing every single time, possibly, but there would need to be you would you would think that that would cry out for an explanation. The, the, the whole point of this premise is to say, wow, if someone chooses the same thing every time, <laughs> that's not random. There's a reason for that, but it can't. But the, the premise three says. No, there can't be a sufficient explanation. If there's not a sufficient explanation, it's hard to see, like, it's hard to see how it's different from randomness or arbitrariness. Okay, anything else before I complete the argument on the next slide? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you might not, but guess what? There's still an explanation. You see that? You can't. You can't get away from it. Still an explanation. Yes. And then I do have to move on. So the well, no, no, no. So you, oh, okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So exactly. So that. So you may be right there. You may say, "Wow, no, man. If someone if someone acts differently, there must be something different prior to that." But that's a conclusion, though. You might say, "Oh, yeah, the mind argument number three that shows that something has to be different." If we that means what you're gonna what you're really saying is no, there is an explanation. You're saying two. You're saying two. That's fine. That's an objection to saying it. But still, as the thought experiment itself goes, if you're you're still this, if there is no sufficient explanation, it's compatible with these different. So, so just just to be clear, so in a thought experiment, just like an experiment in a laboratory, you're trying to isolate variables and everything here. But the point is, if if there's if if meaningful choices don't have sufficient explanations, then the rewind argument could consistently have different choices being made, even if everything is identical. That's what it's supposed to show. And then a Vanenwagen himself, who's going to bite the bullet and embrace that, and he's going to tell a story about how. He's going to try to tell a story about how that's not arbitrary, but he says it seems arbitrary to me. But he says you got to pick one of these. Van and Wagen says you got to pick two or three, and I'm picking three. A lot of other people want to pick two instead. Either one's challenging. All right, I'm going to continue the argument here. 
If we are unable to do otherwise or our choices are arbitrary, that's the conclusion that we've gotten to, the intermediate conclusion, then we do not have free choice. Six follows from four and five via modus ponens. Therefore, we do not have free choice. Seven, if we do not have free choice, then we are not morally responsible for our actions because they are either arbitrary, out of our control, or unable to do otherwise. And therefore, we are not morally responsible for our actions, follows from six and seven. Okay. Uh, all of it follows from the last slide. So, so, so if um, something is arbitrary, you're saying how could, how does it follow that we wouldn't have free choice? Well, because imagine I said, uh, uh, you know, we're going to determine what you're ordering for dinner by rolling a hundred-sided die. And, and there's something arbitrary determining your actions. It's hard to understand how that would be my, my free choice, right? Now, that's the whole point of the, the, the rewind argument is that uh, it, it, it might be something like untethered choice, but a free in a sense that people want to have in this discussion, like free, like meaningful freedom for me as an agent, arbitrariness isn't going to get it done. Randomness uh, isn't, going to, isn't going to get it done. And that's what uh, the dilemma seems to be there. Does that make, does that make sense? Huh? Okay. But I mean, just, just in terms of why arbitrariness wouldn't be considered something that be a, someone would want to really step in and say, oh, I just made a free choice for the same reason if I just roll a random die. And make my choices like that. It's kind of saying, well, was that a free choice? Not really. If our choices are die rolls that we don't have control over, it's hard to see how that's really robust freedom. Uh, might be too untethered to be some be a meaningful kind of, of, of freedom. Okay, so this is how the argument runs. Um, now, I've tried to give it as basic as possible. I've tried to subtract out all the technical language um, uh, uh, and I understand that maybe even in some of that, some people are like, oh my goodness, what, did you, what have you just been talking about? But, yes? Oh, oh, I, I'm sorry. Thank you for, for reading the slide and reading it well. Yes, uh, yeah, if we do not have free choice. I'm so sorry. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. It's supposed to, because it's supposed to just be the conclusion there at six. It's supposed to be six in the antecedent spot. If we do not have free choice, then we are not morally responsible for our actions. That's the, that's the idea. Okay. Therefore, the conclusion, we are not morally responsible for our actions. Okay. This is, in a sense, this is the problem of free will. The problem, the tension comes in to, to, uh, in kind of an incompatible triad. The idea that I can do otherwise, but the idea that my, my choices, in order to be meaningful, need to have explanations. But when you tease both of those out, it seems like you can't have, you can't, you can't have both, at least in the, in the most robust way. Now... Um, what I'm going to sketch before our time ends here, and then I'm going to tell you why we're, I'm even doing this, is four possible replies. I'm going to give you a lay of the land. How do the top-notch philosophers respond to this problem? Because everyone has to do business with this issue, and everyone does. 
Let me give you the first one. The first is to deny two, okay? Free choice, understood as the ability to do otherwise, is compatible with determinism. Now I'm starting to use a little bit more of the technical language. Just determinism means something determined, the choice could be an explanation or a reason. I don't mean like a physical cause, a molecule hit my brain and I did this, but it was determined by something. Um, what people who deny premise two want to say is this, uh, I, I could have done otherwise. You know what that means? What it means is if I had chosen otherwise, we would have done otherwise. That's what that language means. If I, if, I had, if I had desired otherwise, I would have chosen otherwise. Okay? It essentially redefines the ability to do otherwise and control. Uh, what do you think about that reply, by the way? What do you think of that reply? The ability to do otherwise means if I had desired to do otherwise, we would have, uh, we would have chosen otherwise. Uh, so I'm free. What do you think about that? I didn't what? You did you did the thing you did. Okay, that's right. But if I had desired otherwise, I would have done otherwise. Is that a good explanation? Uh, okay, so yeah, so that's I wanted to move it back one more. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have said, listen, okay, I'll grant you that if I had desired otherwise, I would have uh, done otherwise. But I didn't desire otherwise, and you just got done telling me that I don't magically choose my desires every morning, or I wouldn't sin anymore, or I wouldn't do a lot of things. I don't choose my desires like I just choose perhaps to raise my hand. Um, another place where this uh, analysis seems to get it wrong is people who have serious phobias, crippling agoraphobia, for example, um, so, someone who's just terrified of being around other people. Uh, and in public, uh, someone you, you could run a thought experiment where this someone just has crippling agoraphobia, and uh, you know he can't. Leave, there's a huge crowd right outside his house, and he you know he he just cannot do it. He is just petrified. He cannot step outside. This little conditional analysis still says that he you know he has freedom. Well, because if he had wanted to, he could have. It's like uh-uh. yeah, but like the whole problem is he's has debilitating inability to, 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 to actually desire to go outside, okay? doesn't seem like it's a very satisfying account, given that it doesn't address our desires. That's denying premise two. What about denying premise uh, three? Denying three. Free choice is incompatible with determinism, meaning everything having a sufficient explanation but determinism is false. Everything having a sufficient explanation is false, and lacking a sufficient explanation does not necessarily render an action arbitrary or random. So this is dipping into maybe what Chris was talking about earlier. It's like, listen, just because it doesn't have a complete explanation, maybe it doesn't mean it's random. Solution, this solution says that in those cases that we're talking about, there is no sufficient reason for doing X rather than not X. There is not one to be known at all. There doesn't one exist, but that doesn't mean uh, that all such cases are randomness. There's two ways that people have addressed this one. First is to understand luck or randomness as kind of white noise in the system, so to speak. It is genuinely some kind of randomness, arbitrariness, 
but it is, uh, it is a kind of interference that must be overcome in order to make meaningful choices. It's a kind of interference that must be overcome. Its value isn't that the choice kind of pops out of the last place in the chain with no explanation, but there's this, the presence of this explanatory gap has to be overcome by your character. That's what they would say. They're saying the way you run the thought experiment is you go all the way up to this point and then have this flicker of freedom and it looks all random. What we're saying is that there is a degree of uh, randomness in certain choices where there really is no explanation at some point in the chain, but that's necessary. An explanatory gap is necessary um, because we need to, our, our characters need to be overcome those things. So that could, you know, if having an explanatory gap there, that could threaten a weak will or poorly formed reasons, something like that. Um, they give an, they give examples like this. Suppose, um, suppose uh, I give, I set an explosive device in my colleague's desk who won a, a, a great prize that we were competing uh, against one another to achieve. And uh, this is a, it's a, an explosive device, but uh, it, it, it works on like quantum mechanics. Like it's ran, it, it truly is random, let's say. Let's say, depending on how much work goes into making that device, maybe I can get it up to 80%. But I can't determine it. It is truly, even if it's probabilistically determined, you've got to set it and just hope for the best. Well, what happens if I go in there and set it and it blows up and kills that person? Am I responsible? These philosophers say, well, of course you are. Even though you didn't determine it, even though you left a gap there. So it's the same thing. There's gaps in the way we go forward, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the result of randomness. That's the first kind of path that philosophers take on this one. There is arbitrariness, but so long as it comes in the sequence the right way, it can be something that can be overcome and it contributes to virtue and, and thinking through things uh, as noise in the system. The second way is to adopt what's called agent causation. It says, um, listen, you know, occurrences and events, uh, they all have sufficient reasons, but I'm not an occurrence or an event. I'm a person. I'm a different kind of thing. Uh, and I can be an unmoved mover. Roderick Chisholm, one of the greatest metaphysicians of the 20th century, puts it very candidly, and I appreciate this. Uh, if we are responsible... And if what I have been trying to say is true, then we have a prerogative which some would attribute only to God. Each of us, when we act, is a prime mover unmoved. In doing what we do, we cause certain events to happen, and nothing or no one causes us to cause those events to happen. Okay? We act as agents. Now, Peter Vanenwagen mercifully makes fun of this because he just says... Um, well, he makes fun of a lot. But Peter Vanenwagen says, listen, this is just trying to explain something that's mysterious by positing like a bigger mystery. It's like, what is that? What does that mean? Agent causation. Cool. Okay. Like, what is that? Well, you just like make up something. What? Also, it doesn't explain when somebody acts. Even if someone were an unmoved mover, this, this understanding doesn't explain why someone acted at a particular time rather than a little bit later or a little bit earlier. Okay? Still doesn't explain that. That's denying three. What about denying seven? Semi-compatibilism. Free choice, understood as the ability to otherwise, is incompatible with determinism, 
But moral responsibility is consistent with our actions being determined in the appropriate manner. So here's what the semi-compatibilist says. They say, free will, free choice. Whew! That sounds like a difficult conversation. That sound. Have you all seen these arguments for these free choice? I mean, this stuff. Who knows what free will is? Who knows what free choice is? Forget all that. What I'm interested in is morally responsible choice. That's what we need to be focused on. Let's not get lost in the weeds of what counts as a free choice or how free someone has to be. Let's talk about what kind of control I need over my actions in order to be morally responsible. That's what we need to be talking about. We want to call that free will at the end of the day? Okay, we can call that free will. If we're going to call that not free will at the end of the day, eh, nobody cares. We can say we don't have free will, but we have, we're morally responsible. That's their move. Um, let me see how much time I have. Um, John Locke, for example, said famously, suppose we have a person sitting in a room and uh, he's offered a choice to leave the room or stay, remain in the room. He's standing there at the door and he chooses to remain in the room. But later we find out that that door was locked. He couldn't have gone out anyways. Locke concludes, who cares? Who cares? He didn't know it was locked. He couldn't say, oh, I didn't have a choice. It was locked. Locke says, listen, so long as the, the circumstances come about in the right way, you don't necessarily have to have the ability to do otherwise. What matters is the reasons you do what you do, the state of the awareness when you're doing them, and so on and so forth. Um, I have to skip the next part because I don't have enough time. I'm sorry. Finally, almost no one except Dirk Paraboom accepts hard incompatible hard incompatibilism, which is just that uh, no one is ever morally responsible for anything. They accept the conclusion of the argument. It is just to accept the conclusion of the argument. And that is certainly no Christians. Um, all right, so let me just skip over a couple things here. Duh, 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 duh. You don't have to read that one. No, we can't. We'll read this real quick. So the vast majority of philosophers do not want to deny the second premise for the reasons I've talked about or accept the conclusion so most of the debate has been boiled down to the plausibility of denying three and seven, okay? Uh, and trying to give positive accounts there. Now, notice we haven't talked about anything about theology yet. So it's my first mention of anything theological. Because the Reformed tradition, as you might have detected, does not have theological space for contingent elements within the created order that lack sufficient explanations, things that are true just because they are. Well, how'd they get that? Well, they just are. Did it have to be that way? No. But it is that way. Why? If it didn't have to, it, there's no explanation. That's a brute fact. The Reformed worldview does not have a, a space, I would say, for kind of brute facts. Or it doesn't have space, I would say, for anyone acting like God and being a prime unmoved mover. I would say that's not space. Reformed theologians and philosophers have always adopted some version of compatibilism or semi-compatibilism, which happens to be the majority view in the field of philosophy at large. I would say semi-compatibilism, Mike McKenna, uh, John Martin Fisher, Mark Revisa, uh, this semi-compatibilist view is where all of the, everyone's putting their eggs in, in that basket right now. They're saying free choice, mm, 
We'll figure out what free will is once we get to the more, after the more important question, which is, what does it mean to have, a, uh, how much control over my actions do I have to have to be held more, to be morally responsible? Okay. I would, I would certainly suggest that in the, in the philosophical discussion, that's where I would land as well. Instead of debating, well, what counts as free? In fact, I got off the airplane. I was reading them. I've never, ever take a book, a huge book on free will on an airplane because people will ask you questions. But anyways, we were in customs going through Mexico and, uh, She's like, oh, free will. Like, do we have free will? She's like, what's the biggest takeaway from this book? And I said, one of the biggest takeaways is trying to understand just what free will is. I hope some of this morning has helped you understand just when, you, when someone says, well, I've got a free will or I make free choices. It's difficult. Forget whether that's true or not. It's difficult to, under, to articulate, to give a good account of even what that means. And so, here's the final thoughts. Oh, did I not put that slide on there? You don't get the final thoughts. No, you just get them from me. How did that not get on there? I'm sorry. I messed that up. I apologize. Okay, so here's the final thought. Oh, no, I did, that's right. I didn't put it there. If the concept of free choice and its relationship to moral responsibility understood as philosophical problems are extremely challenging, which they are, which they are, I was thought about making like, a, like a really flexing on this point, bringing all these books on the metaphysics of free will. I was like, don't be an idiot. But books and books and thousands and thousands of pages and dissertations on the philosophy of free will, just what it is. So if it's extremely challenging, perhaps, so here's the conclusion as we segue into our doctrines of grace. Perhaps it is an unwise idea to build one's theology around one's intuitions concerning these things. If, the, uh, if free will and moral responsibility as a philosophical problem are extremely challenging, maybe that's not where you should start your theology at. Instead, given the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture, it seems better to build a theology of God's sovereignty, our ability and will and moral responsibility based on responsible interpretation of Scripture and then see what philosophical positions can tease that out. Okay? We're not going to start on a super... We're going to base our theology on a super, super challenging philosophical issue and then that have be, be the foundation of how we think about God and choice and such. No, no, no. We're going to do it the other way around. We're going to do it the other way around. Part of my... it's not, Usually you would not do this, but part of my reason for doing this this morning was to show you how confusing and how challenging and how philosophically difficult this is. And to say, is that really where you want to start with your intuitions about free will? Whatever that ends up meaning, why not instead we start with the clarity of Scripture and see what the Bible tells us about God, us, moral responsibility, responsible action, and go from there. That, as it turns out, will be our course of action over the coming weeks looking forward to studying that with you. Thank you for the extra three minutes. Uh, please come and ask me questions. I'm happy to talk about these, probably too happy to talk about uh, these things. Honestly, I've tried to contain my excitement. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we are thankful that you are sovereign. We are thankful that nothing uh, in this world happens outside of your sovereign decree. Because of that, we can have hope. Because of that, we can have um, faith that is not empty.
I'm thankful for this time, Lord. I pray this has not been just an academic exercise, a bit of navel gazing or something, but uh, that has been helpful in terms of how we should think about these things as we engage the scripture and the order in which we should do so. Be with us in a special way during our next hour as we celebrate.